Welcome to this edition of On Politics. I'm Dr. Eric Morrow at Tarleton State University, and I want to welcome you to the show today. Uh, we are coming up on our one year anniversary for On Politics, and of course, we started a year ago. It was uh, Cogley and Morrow on Politics, and Dr. Cogley has uh, moved on uh, to do some other things and, and we may have the chance to welcome him back at some point, uh, but uh, it has been me over the last uh, four or five months and we've seen some format changes in the show where it has moved from more discussion and commentary on the part of two hosts to one with interviews and focus on different aspects of governance and policy at the local, state, and federal levels, but we've tried to keep the focus, or I've tried to keep the focus of the show uh, as we intended in the beginning, and that is a, a nonpartisan forum that is focused on getting information. It's focused on uh, looking at uh, uh, data, at research that's out there, uh, look, looking at various critical themes, the types of things that we all need as engaged citizens to be able to uh, tackle the critical issues, to be more informed, uh, to be involved in a way that informs what we say, our opinions, our attitudes, our understanding of the complexity of many of these issues that we see uh, in politics, in governance, and in public policy. So I want to welcome you to the almost anniversary edition of the show this week. I want to remind you that on Facebook, I'll be posting some relevant articles that I mentioned today in the show, that we are available just as we are now on KTRL 90.5 FM, but every Sunday at noon on tarletonradio.com. And then following the show, you can listen to a recording of the show on SoundCloud or where you download podcasts. So there's plenty of options there for you to catch up, to engage with uh, critical issues, more in depth, get information uh, every week right here on KTRL 90.5 FM. I have three segments to the show today. And the first segment is tied to the commemoration of 9-11. And while we are a few days past that in the broadcast of the show, I think it's very critical that we look back at this event that had such an impact on governance, politics, and policy. And my reflection here is not so much about uh, directly connected to those areas. I think uh, we, we could spend, and as many people have spent years and continue to spend uh, time researching and looking at how, uh, looking at that impact, some of which we, we see very real in our involvement in Iraq, our involvement in Afghanistan, uh, in other parts of the world, and the issues that we see here at home related to homeland security and to terrorism and so on, that, that there's, there, there is so much, there's so much there. My focus is much more of personal reflections as I was living in New York uh, on September 11th, uh, 2001. In fact, I had just returned from a trip to India and had gotten back a few days before that and was preparing to go back into work uh, when the first plane hit the tower that morning. And of course, for many of us in New York, if, uh, of course, I'm not originally from there, but I was working there. And most people in New York knew about uh, plane crashes, especially the one that crashed into the Empire State Building. And, and so you were, the initial thoughts of that is I've heard many other people over and over again say this, that, well, something tragic happened. There's an accident here uh, and not realizing at that time the magnitude of it. I heard about it when the morning mail was delivered and the, uh, the uh, postal worker said there's been a plane crash into one of the Twin Towers. And so, of course, the immediate response was to go to the television, to turn it on. Uh, I was getting ready to go into the city, living out on Long Island. And uh, from that moment, saw things develop. The second plane, the Pentagon, uh, what happened in Pennsylvania. All of this began to develop in a short period of time that morning. The work that I was doing at that time, I was... Uh, working with the Greek Orthodox Archdiocese, which is based out of New York. 
And uh, we had a church at Ground Zero that was just below one of the towers that was just completely obliterated. Uh, and of course, the, the communities lost many, many people. Uh, remember going to funerals uh, for months after that. Uh, and of course, going to Ground Zero on a number of occasions as we did various commemorations of, uh, and, and not necessarily commemorations, but observances and, and services to remember those who had passed and the tragedy of that event. And so another aspect of this was a lot of writing that I did and preparing materials and communicating uh, within the archdiocese on a number of facets related to this. But all of that culminated for me uh, in uh, a few years ago, uh, about five years ago, when I wrote an article, uh, reflections really, uh, on remembering uh, September 11th. And I wanted to come back to that. I wanted, I wanted to read it. I posted it on my Facebook page. But for me, this kind of encapsulated that, at least what I experienced. There, there are so many people that experienced things that were much more tragic. They lost loved ones. They, uh, they, they had family members that left their homes on Long Island or in New Jersey that morning that never came back. Uh, the, the, just the sheer destruction uh, of it all. I remember just within a week going to, to Ground Zero and wearing a face mask and a hard hat. And when you turned into that part of the city, it just looked like a war zone, just a huge pile of rubble and people scurrying all over it, trying to uh, still trying to save lives and trying to rescue people and, and evaluate uh, what could be done at that point. And it was just, it's one of those experiences that just stays with you. Uh, you never lose the sight, the vision of it. You never lose the, the smell as the, everything was being sprayed with disinfectant. Uh, and so all of that had an impact that led to me writing this that I'd like to share with you just as a uh, remembrance uh, of acknowledging the impact of the day on my life, but also on so many other lives and certainly on our country. Remembering September 11th. The news was delivered with the morning mail. A plane had crashed into one of the Twin Towers in Manhattan, just 22 miles away. The first thing that came to mind were the stories of the B-25 bomber, which crashed in foggy weather into the Empire State Building in 1945. But this was a clear day. The magnitude of what was happening escaped me until I turned on the television. From the safety of my home on Long Island, I watched as one tower burned, another plane crashed into the second tower, and both buildings fell. What followed for the people of New York City and for our nation in the moments, days, and now years were experiences, memories, loss, hope, and recovery that have changed all our lives. The skies eerily silent, planes grounded, the roads and rails quiet as the largest daily migration of people in the world ceased. The air filled with dust, particles of persons and property lost in that tragic event. The smell of ground zero, ash, disinfectant and decay. The sight of tremendous destruction was unfathomable as I passed through standing buildings to the fallen. A piece of a bell and a few melted candles, all that remained of a small church crushed under the debris. The reports of deaths, the funerals and memorial services, which continued for months. Cars at rail stations waiting to be retrieved by family members who saw their loved ones for the last time on that fateful morning. The long processions of police cars and fire trucks honoring the first responders who died on that day. The images of tragedy, fear, grief, anger, pain, and bewilderment. These were some of my experiences and memories following September 11, 2001, but these do not offer a complete picture of the tragedy and its aftermath. For in the midst of so much loss and suffering, in response to the barbaric attacks and the loss of innocent life, was an explosion of another kind, of compassion. Rescue teams from throughout the nation and the world leaving their homes and coming to offer their support and assistance. 
The streets leading to Ground Zero lined with rescue and recovery services, providing assistance to those working feverishly to save lives. Construction and steel workers offering assistance and skills to remove debris. Churches and communities rallying around the families who lost loved ones. Organizations from around the world offering donations for relief and recovery efforts. Dedicated volunteers sacrificing time and health to care for the victims of the attacks. Drives organized to raise needed resources to meet the needs of families. Prayers offered as memorials to those who died. Flags flown in honor and solidarity. Hearts separated by distance, united in compassion. This should be the most significant legacy of that day. Not the war on terror, the threats of violence, economic catastrophes, budget deficits, the burden of heightened security, or suspicions of other countries, cultures, and beliefs. Our memories should be filled with images and stories of how the hatred of a few was met with the compassion of an entire nation, of how violence against innocent victims was confronted by heroism and sacrifice, of how an ideology of terror was defeated by our shared recognition of our common humanity, and how machinations of death and fear were overcome by our unyielding value of life. On the anniversary of this tragic day, many will gather in churches and communities with our families and friends and remember the great loss and sacrifice. We will reflect on how the world has changed and on how, in some ways, it has not. We will think once again about what we value in life and give thanks for what we have. May we also remember what helped so many survive that day and brought a nation together. It was our ability to care for each other, to offer assistance readily to those in need, and to show compassion in the midst of great tragedy. Other tragedies and hardships will come in this complex and shrinking world in which we live. But may our memory of 9-11, our character, and our compassion for each other, not misconceptions of the world, anger, or retribution, lead us in our response and show the power, potential, and goodness of our humanity. I offer that uh, as something that I roll out again every year on Facebook and now the, the opportunity of the radio show, uh, just as a reflection on just the, the significance of this event in so many ways. And I hope that as you listen to that, that you were able to engage in some of the both visual, uh, the visual aspects, uh, as well as just the, 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 all of the different dynamics of what happened and what followed and what this still says to us today uh, about uh, the, the, the fabric that we have as a nation and how we respond to crisis. And I relate that here at the, in this first segment of the show to our response to uh, the pandemic. And certainly there's a difference here. This is not a, a foreign threat. Uh, this is not uh, as much a threat to national security as that was, although though it is. It's a, it's a threat that uh, has not necessarily brought us together. It has in some ways, but in many other ways, as we see within our politics, uh, as we see within our ability to connect with each other in civility and to discuss our differences, but, but we willing to find a way forward. Uh, it's become uh, very challenging in that way. And I think we need to look back on this event of 9-11 for those of us that remember it, for those of us that experienced it wherever we were in the country or around the world. And we need to take some things from that in navigating ahead through the pandemic, through uh, this, this impact that it has had both uh, politically, economically, but just in terms of life in general and what people are challenged with uh, today. So thank you for listening to that. As I read it, I don't often read things directly, especially of that length on, length on the show, but I wanted to share that with you uh, in remembrance of those who sacrificed, of those who gave, uh, gave their lives, but, but also contributed to the recovery and the response uh, to such a tragedy uh, that has happened uh, in, our, in, our, in the history of our country and certainly its impact that it had 
on our country and the world. So we're going to take a short break and we will come back. I've got a couple of other segments uh, to offer today. One is looking at voter fraud, because I think in our discussion of voting that we need to give a little bit of attention to this. And there was a, a really good opinion piece that was out this past week in the Washington Post by John, John Hopkins professor Benjamin Ginsburg, who has also been a GOP election lawyer, and his talking about the challenges here in in finding the data and just the widespread fraud that, that some people are claiming. And then in the last part of the show, uh, we will turn to look at some of the data points that we've discussed all along the way throughout this year and looking at the outcome of the 2020 presidential election. We will be right back. Do you love great jazz music? Then join Mike Pierce and Hank Jones for two great hours of essential jazz every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Together, they have 75 years of collective jazz listening experience. You'll hear everything from Louis Armstrong and Charlie Parker to the new jazz sounds of today. Join them as they bring you the best in jazz music every Tuesday from 1 to 3 p.m. Here on the best jazz station in all of the Cross Timbers region, KTRL 90.5 FM. Texas is a Texas-based history podcast from historian Dr. T. Lindsey Baker. Find a new episode every Thursday morning wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to On Politics. I'm Dr. Eric Morrow. And in the second segment of the show here on KTRL 90.5 FM and streaming on tarletonradio.com, I wanted to look back at an opinion piece that came out this last week focused on voter fraud. And as you know, we've been giving a a significant amount of attention over the year to voting. Uh, We recently had on the Erath County clerk talking about preparations for voting right here in Stephenville and in the county. And we've given attention to other issues as well. I did talk about last week as well, different types and levels of voting uh, uh, or access to voting through uh, limited ballots, through uh, um, uh, uh, provisional ballots. And I also gave attention last week to President Trump's comments that many took as urging people to double vote. Uh, which of course would be fraud uh, in any state in the United States, that is voting by mail and then going in and voting again. Although there is an opportunity here where someone could go in either taking their ballot that they've received by mail or uh, wanting to vote what would be called a provisional ballot because uh, they had uh, already requested a ballot and it was not available to them. They'd already either sent it in uh, or it was lost or something like that. There's still opportunities here. And I had focused more on the motivations of President Trump and which was in line with him questioning voting by mail. Uh, And that has been his assertion all along is that mail voting is dangerous. And of course, he's even said uh, there's tremendous fraud involved and tremendous illegality. So he has had this message. If we go back to 2016 and his campaign If we go back to shortly after he was elected, he created the Presidential Advisory Commission on Election Integrity with the intent of exposing fraud uh, that he believed was part of elections. Uh, If you remember, his messaging was that he really uh, he probably won the popular vote, not Hillary Clinton, and that the reason that he didn't win the popular vote uh, was because of voter fraud. So this has been been a focus of his. And this opinion piece, which was written by Benjamin Ginsburg in the Washington Post, uh, it really kind of tackles that and, and, and really warns Republicans. He, he's a Republican himself. He has been an election lawyer uh, for a number of decades. Uh, he's also a political science professor at John Hopkins University, uh, but he practiced election law for 38 years. So he has some credibility here, and he's really speaking to people within the party to say, let's let's be careful here. Let's let's look at the data. He's not ruling out that that certainly voter fraud is possible, and it and it has happened. Uh, but the number 
of, of cases are very, very limited. Uh, and it's just the way the system is set up itself makes it very, very challenging first. And this is where I think President Trump does have a point is that states are doing their jobs. They're doing what they need to. They're putting their resources into ensuring the integrity of elections. Uh, now, Ginsburg comes down a little harder on Trump even than I did in, in talking about double voting. So he he goes right to it and, and just says this is very, very dangerous. I said it it's dangerous in questioning the integrity of the election, uh, but it's also dangerous if people try to use this in a, with ulterior motives to try to disrupt voting on election day. And so hordes of people come in and say, we want to vote provisional ballot. And that creates a different process that election workers have to follow uh, and, and, and so on. So, and, and thus delays as well. that could delay counting of votes depending on how many that we're talking about. Uh, but Ginsburg said, I want to get to a couple of, of, of points here that I think are important. Uh, so Ginsburg has, since he says in his article, each election day since 1984, I have been in precincts looking for voting violations or in Washington helping run the nationwide GOP election day operations, overseeing the thousands of Republican lawyers and operatives each election on alert for voting or voter fraud. In every election, Republicans have been in polling places and vote tabulation centers. Republican lawyers in every state have been able to examine mail-in absentee ballot programs. And so what he's saying here is that, that this has been going on, the monitoring of elections by the Republican Party with the concern for voter fraud has been going on uh, for decades. And he turns then to say the president has said that the only way we can lose is if cheating goes on. He has asserted that mail-in voting is very dangerous and that there is tremendous fraud involved and tremendous illegality, like I mentioned before. Ginsburg then counters that by saying the lack of evidence renders these claims unsustainable. The truth is that after decades of looking for illegal voting, there's no proof of widespread fraud. At most, there are isolated incidents. Now, and this is not just Ginsburg, this other scholars who've looked looked at voting. I mean, the data's out there. If you just get out there and look at the research that's been done related to voting and voter fraud, he's repeating what, what we can, what is seen and what can, has been found. At most, there are isolated incidents on both sides. Elections, as he says, are not rigged. Absentee ballots use the same process as mail-in ballots. Different states use different labels for the same process. So, he goes on to talk about the Presidential Advisory Commission on Election Integrity, which disbanded without finding anything. Uh, and he, he really comes down on uh, people who say, who claim, and thus want to use that to injure the integrity of the election, that there is widespread fraud. Uh, the, the data itself does not show that. Uh, it, we have a system uh, that is not uh, integrated throughout the country. It, it's different in every state in that each state operates its own elections. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with one of the Robin Williams movies I really enjoy is Man of the Year, where as a comedian, he ends up being elected president uh, because there is a national voting tabulation system. So there's a computer program and it's set up to tabulate all of this on a national level and because of a problem with the coding, it ends up uh, shuttling votes to him and he wins the election. And polling showed that he had no chance and so on, but all of a sudden he wins. Uh, and so the movie is about, uh, about all of this and these dynamics that go with it. We, we don't have that kind of system. And, and many people would advocate against that, that we have to leave it in the hands of the state, uh, both in terms constitutionally, uh, as well as the integrity of the system, knowing that, yes, there are going to be challenges like we saw in Florida in 2000 with administering the election, but also realizing that those different systems really help to prevent widespread fraud. Uh, and so that, that's critical here, I think, in what Ginsburg is saying, 
is that the system that we have has prevented that. And we have to be careful here about building a case for something of which there's really no support. There's no data there to show uh, that uh, we, we need to doubt the integrity of our elections. This also leaves space that if there are, there, there are problems, there are challenges, such as a delay in determining the winner if it's a very close election. And because of the pandemic we're in, there are more people voting by absentee or mail-in balloting. Uh, if there is a problem in a particular state where uh, the, the technology fails or some part of the process is, uh, there's a mis mistakes that are made, this, this leaves room for the integrity of voting and an election as a whole to remain in place while addressing those specific types of issues. So I think this Ginsburg piece is really important. It's a, it's a little inflammatory. I think it's, it's, it comes down really hard on Trump. And, and I try not to do that in terms of being partisan on this show. I don't want people to, to uh, 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 I'm not here to debate about getting into different sides of this other than looking at how this applies specifically to governance and policy and really understanding politics and the political sphere and, and, and how all that that works and trying to give people a broader understanding of that. And so I think this, this is related to that. It's related to the politics of an election. It's related to the, to the rhetoric and to what resonates perhaps with a constituency that's out there uh, that would then affirm their concerns. Uh, it, it, it may have other issues as well. We'll see depending on how the election turns out, how close it is, and then how President Trump responds to either a win or a loss. Certainly if he wins, the integrity of the system will probably be championed. Uh, if it's very close and undetermined, uh, there could be very, very much be questions about it and, and raised. And then of course it moves into another sphere of the states, the courts and so on. But one of the things I think is again, emphasizing on this show as we've done all along when we've talked about voting and that is, we have to do everything. And by we, I mean, not just the people, but we have to ask of our, our leaders, of our elected officials, and those responsible for the election, that we have to do everything we can to ensure its integrity. We have to ensure that things are accurate. We have to ensure that, that people, no matter what their uh, party affiliation, their ideology, but people who are eligible to vote and are registered to vote, that they have that opportunity and that that vote counts because it is the integrity of it itself, of the voting process and of elections that sustains our, our uh, acceptance, our social contract to adhere to the rule of law and to transition power. To, uh, to, to move forward and accept outcomes, whether we like them or not, to accept outcomes and continue to govern ourselves in this way. Uh, we do that, uh, uh, and hopefully we've got to continue that peacefully. We can't let this deteriorate into something where uh, uh, we, we no longer can have that level of trust in our constitution, in the rule of law, in the way we conduct transitions of power, or affirmations of those that are in power by reelecting them. Uh, all of that be becomes very much in jeopardy if the integrity of voting is not upheld and if more and more people begin to question uh, that process, one that has, has worked for us, at least in terms of the transition of power at all different levels of governance. So I will post this article on Facebook so that you can connect with it and look at it for yourself. And we're going to take another quick break and we'll be back in the last segment to talk about data that will lead us to the 2020 presidential election. We'll be right back. Hey, Cross Timbers, are you tired of constantly changing your radio dial to hear different styles of music? Then join Dr. Paul every Thursday from 1 to 3 p.m. for Random Tracks, a two-hour block where you'll hear the best in modern music. Plus, you'll get Dr. Paul's special take on just about everything. That's Random Tracks with your host, Dr. Paul, Thursdays from 1 to 3 p.m. right here on KTRL 90.5 FM. 
The Tarleton Food Pantry is now accepting donations for students, faculty, and staff who find themselves uncertain where their next meal is coming from. Located in the Student Center, room 103A, adjacent to the Information Desk, the pantry is open weekdays from 1 to 6 p.m. Non-perishable food items can be dropped off between 8 a.m. and 5 p.m. at the Information Desk and at the Office of Diversity and Inclusion on the Student Center's lower level. For more information, visit tarleton.edu slash foodpantry. Welcome back to On Politics. I'm glad you are joining us today for this almost one-year anniversary show that will be next week, where we have been on the air with On Politics uh, for a full year. And we started the show out with a uh, remembrance for September 11th. So if you were not with us at that point, I would encourage you to go to SoundCloud after the show airs today either right here on KTRL 90.5 FM, which we are now, or TarletonRadio.com. But after the show, you can always go to SoundCloud, or you can download the show as a podcast and listen to all of the segments. And of course, today we have not had a guest on the show. We have focused on several different areas, 9-11, voter fraud. And now in the last part of the show today, I want to turn to some of the data points that we've been looking at throughout this year to determine the outcome of the 2020 presidential election. And I will be posting uh, some of these links on Facebook. So this week we'll have a lot of links, a lot of posts to Facebook that will connect you to these points of information that I'm using on the show. And here we are less than 60 days uh, from the election. And I think it's starting to, to be the opportunity, I would say, to look at these data points and revisit them on occasion in order to, uh, to, to give us that insight into where this is going. And if you remember back, if you listened to one of the programs earlier in the year, uh, one of the discussions that we had was about how polling had changed from the previous election to this election. And one of the things that came out of that uh, has not only been the, the adjustments, so other factors that led to a Trump win when many of the national polls had Hillary Clinton up, which of course she met the point spread in terms of popular vote, she lost the electoral vote. And so a number of adjustments have been put in place. Uh, but one of the things that has come out of that is how the closer a race is. So here Clinton going into the election was leading by three to four percentage points in terms of popular vote, at least national polling, uh, but lost the race. And so it, it, it's really clear that that margin is enough for the uh, other candidate, the one that is polling lower, to win. So that margin can, can swing, and, that, and especially as we connect that with the Electoral College because the electoral college is not necessarily fixed along those percentage points. And what, what I mean by that is what we saw in 2016 is that Clinton was able to win the popular vote uh, by that three to four percentage points. And, but Trump was able to win enough states to have enough electoral votes. And so you see that there's some, some disconnection here uh, in terms of national percentage lead and electoral votes. The broader that national lead is, the, the larger that lead is by percentage points, uh, the more likely that that candidate is to draw enough electoral votes. And so the, the conventional thinking now is when you look at this, that if a candidate has a seven, eight point lead or higher, uh, that it's most likely. I mean, while there are still a few scenarios that could lead to a Trump win in this case, that Biden, because as of today, he has a seven and a half point lead, has enough of a national polling margin lead uh, to be able to put together the combination of states that will give him the victory. Now, I want to bring in some other data points that I want you to consider. So I, certainly I'm not calling the race here. Uh, we've got too much time. We've got plenty of issues at work here. I just want to bring to your attention the types of data that we need to be watching. And, I, and for me, I've been listening and listening to people, scholars, to journalists, to reading articles and looking at, okay, what are some of the critical data points 
that can help us to see where we are right now and what likely outcome that we were to have if the election were to happen tomorrow. Uh, that's the way you'll hear a lot of these reporters and journalists, scholars, and so on will be saying, well, if the election was to happen today or tomorrow, here's what we can say. Uh, so I think people are going to be a little more cautious going in here, but there is some uh, uh, things starting to gel around several data points that we should look at very seriously as we're moving into this last stretch uh, of the campaigns prior to the election. Uh, so one of those uh, is how much fluctuation we have seen. So, so point number one, or, or data point number one, how much has this race fluctuated? And if, if we look back, all the way back to 1940, and I'm taking this from several uh, articles that I've read uh, in, the, in the data that's been provided, but if we look back to 1940, so that's 19 previous elections, what we see is that the, the, the fluctuation in national polling for candidates has been double that from January of the election year through early uh, September of the same year. That is, the range in the polls in the average election has been closer to 14 to 16 points depending on how you calculate the polling average. Okay, so what's different about this election? Okay, and this is one of the points that we need to look at. Biden has only fluctuated between six and 10 point advantage. Okay, it's not been as wide a swing uh, as what we've seen, where especially even in the last election where we saw it swing considerably between the two candidates, uh, between Hillary and between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. In this election, this has been the most steadiest race in terms of, of national polling lead of any race that we've seen since uh, 1940. That tells us something about where voters are and who has already made up their mind and how much is out there at play as we move closer to the election. So that for some that may say, well, how, what does that, that really mean? And I think what it means is that, that there hasn't been as many things that have had that impact, whether it's the candidates themselves, whether it's been events, whether it's been conventions that have caused that, uh, that, that range of lead uh, to swing wildly, as we've seen many times in, in previous elections. Uh, we've seen a very, very steady national polling that continues to have, as we said today, a seven and a half point lead. Now, Trump's made a little ground up, but but what people are looking at this data says that he, he really needs to make up three to four percentage points to get this competitive. He needs to be back where he was in relationship to Clinton with Biden in order to really have the chance of pulling this out in terms of the electoral college vote uh, as it connects with national polling uh, and looking at specific states as well. So that's one data point, and I would encourage you to, to look at that. Uh, I'll post uh, an article related to that uh, that talks about how steady this race actually has been and how that may impact the outcome. The second point that we should look at are swing voters. So this is very closely related. If you think about people who've not made up their mind and who might be swinging back and forth in statewide and national polling, uh, these are those voters who haven't yet made up their mind. And all of the data that's coming out is showing us that a very large percentage, majority of the support behind each of the candidates here, uh, they have made up their mind that the percentage of swing voters has is, is very, very small. It's, it's not a significant enough number uh, to, um, uh, uh, to make up the difference. And we'll say a couple of things about this. When we started looking at swing voters uh, back in early in this process, this was even before Biden had received the nomination, we were talking about voters who voted for Barack Obama in 2012 and then voted for Donald Trump in 2016. 
So we're looking at some of those same voters. We're looking at those that, whether are they going to continue to support Trump? Uh, are they firmly behind him? Or might they swing to Biden? Data shows that very few voters who voted for Hillary Clinton in 2016 will vote for Trump in 2020. So there's not going to be that group of swing voters that move from one candidate to the incumbent uh, uh, enough to make a difference. The other part of it is looking at how much of that support will go to Biden and those swing voters. And again, what we're seeing, and I'm, I'm going back to, and I'll, I'll, again, I'll post this on Facebook, the Engagious Swing Voter Project, where they are going around to critical swing states and they're interviewing swing voters. Okay, so are they a swing voter now? Well, not really. If they voted for Trump, are they going to swing to Biden? Okay, yes, they'd be a swing voter, but that supports Biden. So that, that, that doesn't help Trump. What we're seeing is in, in many of those states is that those swing voters who swung from voting for Barack Obama in 2012 and to voting for Trump in 2016, the majority of them are still behind Trump. Uh, and so that helps, I think, in some ways to know that that Trump has broadened his base a little bit, if those people can now be considered part of his base, but that any additional swing uh, is, going, is going to be very difficult. Uh, remember, turnout was not what it needed to be for Hillary Clinton, even though she won the popular vote, turnout in several swing states was, uh, was, was lacking. And we'll talk about turnout as a factor here in a moment. So what we're looking at is a very, very a shrinking pool of what we could identify as swing voters who will be available uh, to uh, support Trump and try to help him make up uh, some of this ground uh, in what we're seeing in the difference in national polling at this point. The third data set that we turn to then is some of the things that we got out of the Moody Analytics report and their approach to the elections. And we covered this earlier in the year. We looked at how they adapted their model uh, in a few different ways uh, in order to uh, accommodate the Trump win and really to explain it because their model in 2016 had showed a Clinton win. And so they had added some different facets to it as they analyzed the data coming out of that election. And there were four areas, uh, four uh, areas that informed uh, their, uh, their data and, of course, their prediction of an outcome. And, of course, turnout is the first one. With larger turnout or, or group turnout better than happened in 2016, uh, the election would most likely go to Biden. But they, they have three other models that they look at, pocketbook model, stock market model, and the unemployment model. If, if you are familiar with these, you may not be, and I'll provide the link to go back and look at this, but Pocketbook is about personal economic well-being connected to gas prices uh, and, and, and other things. The Pocketbook model is the wallet. How does this impact me and my financial well-being? Where, where am I now? Am I better off? Okay, we, we're starting to hear that question again. We've heard it in the campaigning. And so the pocketbook model is one to consider and one that in the midst of this COVID crisis, in the midst of, of problem challenges with, with housing and, and the cost of certain things, uh, the pocketbook model is very, uh, very much relates here. The second model is the stock market model. Uh, of course, the stock market model is one that has to be looked at as we get closer to the election. Uh, they, their model allows for looking at a swing in the stock market or an impact on the stock market within a few weeks of the election itself. And so we don't know what's going to happen between now and the election that might have an impact on that. And then finally, it is the unemployment model. And so that model here shows us, okay, we are in a time where unemployment has gone up, but it's improving. How is that going to weigh in on the election? So again, these are data points that, that, that need to be looked at very carefully because all of these in the past have influenced election outcomes in some way or another. So we've talked about national polling, we've talked about swing voters, we've talked about the models provided uh, by the Moody Analytics Report. The last one that I want to, to get to uh, in this segment today 
is religious voters. Now, you may ask, well, why is this uh, a data point? Why is this a factor? Well, it's a factor in a number of ways. If we look back at previous presidential elections, religious voters, in terms of a voting block and how they vote, have had an impact on outcomes. Many look back at the election of 2000 with George W. Bush and that the, the percentage of people voting based on religious identity connected to politics uh, helped in that win when Bush won the Electoral College but did not win the popular vote. Uh, going back to 1980 and the win of Ronald Reagan, his connecting with the religious right and their political activity in terms of both registering voters, but also looking to try to have more influence on national policies uh, was critical uh, in that election. That's where you had many people in the South who may have voted for Jimmy Carter in 76, but then swung to Reagan as seeing him as someone who, as a, as a conservative, but also as someone that they could connect with, and he connected with them to try to uh, move forward a uh, policy agenda. For Trump, we saw in 2016 that over 80% of evangelicals who voted, voted for Donald Trump. And so one of the things that we're looking at, and, and studies are now coming out just in these, these uh, last few days, uh, are how uh, the overtures to religious uh, voters by Donald Trump appear to be falling flat. He's trying to connect with that base. Uh, once again, he's trying to connect with that to, to pull in every constituency uh, that he needs uh, in order to, to get the vote out in certain swing states and hopefully do what he did again uh, in 2016. And so one of the things that has recently come out is a new study of Catholic and evangelical voters that suggest that Trump is poised to lose a sizable chunk of his Christian voters in November. Uh, that that percentage of, of people who voted for him, both evangelicals and even among Catholics. Um, and, th and this poll is, is backed up by other, other data. And so it's looked at demographics across five major battleground states, Florida, Michigan, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, and shows that uh, an 11% swing toward Biden. So it doesn't mean that Biden's going to get the larger percentage of votes among evangelicals and Catholics, but that, that percentage for Biden is going to increase over what it did for Clinton. And that swing is coming from people who voted for Trump. Another poll that in a survey by Fox News in August showed that form, the former Vice President Biden at 28% support among white evangelicals up 12 percentage points from the 2016 exit polls uh, for Hillary Clinton, who was the Democratic nominee. So what we're seeing here is another data point. And, and some may say, well, this is just a small segment of, of the population, but it is those small segments that are large enough to be a critical constituency to win in states that are swing states, to be able to, uh, to have the numbers uh, that are needed in order to capture those electoral college votes. Because as the way it looks now, certainly Biden can win the popular vote, but the path for a Trump win is once again, winning those swing states that would give him the electoral college advantage. And so what these, these data points are showing, and now is this focus with religious voters, is that, that some of that group that supported Trump in 2016 is now shifting. It's shifted from, uh, from Trump to Biden. Uh, or it could be, too, that some of these are caught in the swing. Uh, are they trying to decide one way or another uh, who they may vote for? And this polling is, is given some reasons for that. I mean, some of it has been the way that, that Trump has presented himself, uh, some of the, the way he, he has looked at religion uh, as being something very functional, something that, that he uses for his, um, uh, you know, for his promotion as president and, and really just a way of kind of connecting with people uh, who are religious. Uh, 
Whereas Biden is someone, even though, you know, Trump's tr come down on him and saying, well, he doesn't believe in God. If you vote for him, it's a vote against God. It's a vote against the Bible or he'll do damage to this, to, to religion. Biden being a, a very, uh, 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 someone who's practiced his religion publicly. He's, it's been known that he is, is very much uh, uh, engaged in his own religious faith and experience. So, all of this, and I think some of this may come out in the debates as well, I think Trump will make an effort to appeal to these religious voters, especially in these swing states, but certainly on, on a whole nationally. Uh, but what is of concern here, again, is the data. Uh, the religious vote is not that it's not that Trump won't get the larger majority, but he's not going to reach the numbers that he did in 2016, and that's not going to help him uh, if, if the trends stay uh, where they are now. So these five data points, and again, I'll, I'll post articles. This last one came from an article on Politico uh, that was published this week uh, by Gabby Orr and is based on this new study that has come out uh, so that you can have access to all of this same data and be able to look at it. But those five points are national polling, uh, the, the swing voters, uh, Moody Analytics, Okay, so and there's several in there. So I actually kind of count that as, as two areas, but and the religious vote. Uh, the religious vote again, I think, is one that we have to give attention to. So I want to thank you for joining me today. I, I know I didn't have a, an interview, and I know those are we always try to have engaging guests, but I had so much that I wanted to cover today uh, to keep some critical issues in front of you. And we will look forward to being back next week on politics. Remember to look us up on Facebook where you can get interesting and engaging reads along with the issues that we present on the show to download on SoundCloud or, or visit us on SoundCloud, download a podcast, listen to us during the week so that you can stay informed about these issues and then plan if you can to join us each week at noon right here on KTRL 90.5 FM and streaming on tarletonradio.com. Look forward to being with you next week. Network podcast with production from me, Taylor Welch, and me, Carissa Cole. Find more great shows by searching Tarleton Radio Network wherever you get your podcasts.